Good morning, my name is Ellie Jones. Please listen to God's word from Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piecing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Tom Macy, member of the staff here and privileged for the second Sunday in a row to have the opportunity to, to preach today. Did you fully understand everything in that text you just read? It's a bit of a challenging one. I've never preached that text before. The last three verses I have, or the last two verses, but not the rest of it. I have delighted in studying it, and I hope that we'll at least make some progress today because it's an incredibly important message that God has for us from the book of Hebrews. Let me introduce it this way. Our daughter, our oldest daughter, Carolyn, like all four of our children, made a profession of faith in Christ as a child, as a little girl, baptized as a young teen, and had plans, senior year in high school, to go on to college at Trinity International University in Deerfield. This was 1994. But as a senior in high school, she was with our youth group on their winter retreat, winter of 94, and uh, they had with them a number of guests from Hungary, one girl who had, in our two years in a row, we'd had a, a girl from Hungary as a guest in our home for a few weeks in the winter. And the uh, speaker that Carolyn had heard many times was making a case for Christianity essentially for the benefit of those guests from Hungary who were steeped in atheism. Carolyn listened to the message, saying that things she'd heard and believed for a long time, but this time she heard the counter-arguments of the Hungarian guests, 
decided they made more sense, became emotionally distraught, broke the rules that you never leave the group and go back to your room. She did that. She cried. She was brokenhearted that she could no longer believe what she'd always believed as she found these answers more compelling that the atheist had given. She'd become an agnostic. We were oblivious. She said nothing to us. I don't know whether to be sad or happy about that. It made the next year easier for us, certainly. She went on to Trinity. Never doubted that she was supposed to go to Trinity in 94. But she was openly agnostic on campus. Not in a hostile way. But she would simply ask other students why they believed in God. And she thought their answers were very simplistic and not very uh, compelling. But in the grace of God, a philosophy professor helped address some of the intellectual questions she had. She saw the gospel lived out with integrity by a number of people. And she read a book about the radical grace of God in the spring of 95 that broke through her heart. And she openly embraced Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, how do you interpret that? Was she saved as a little girl, then lost her salvation in Colorado that night, and then resaved a, later, a year later in Chicago? I don't believe so. Uh, based on what I read in Romans 8 and John 6 and John 10 and other passages, I don't think that's the case. Was she saved all the time through this period of doubt, which is kind of a, a rite of passage for people going through that particular period of their, of their life specifically? That's, that's, that's entirely possible. But if I had known she was being openly agnostic on the Trinity campus, I would have been very concerned about whether or not she was truly a believer, whether or not she was saved. Was she never saved as a child? Just said a prayer that adults told her to pray and came to faith at age 19 in college. That's what I tend to believe. But on another level, I don't care. <laughs> I'm just thrilled that my baby, my first baby, now age 43, loves and serves Jesus. Well, Hebrews 4 is an extension of the same flow of thought from chapter 3 in which doubts are raised about the security of our salvation using the metaphor of rest for salvation. Chapter 2 has said, lest we drift away from it. Chapter 3, if we hold fast our confidence, lest you fall away, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then in chapter 4, we'll see, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And if you keep reading through Hebrews, there's a, a tough section in chapter 6, a couple of things in chapter 10, and a passage in chapter 12 that may shake you further. Let's look at Hebrews 4, though, today, which starts with a mixed message. It seems to, to be a mixed message. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands or remains, and we see that word remains several times in the text. 
while this promise of entering the rest remains, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to enter it. You know, I've heard many times that the most common command in the whole Bible is do not fear. One person said it's found 70 times, somebody else said 200, somebody else said 300, somebody else said, you know, it's found there 366 times once for every day of the year, including leap year. Not not sure I buy that. Uh, Don't know about the numbers. But I know it is a very important command, do not fear. And yet look at what it says here in verse 1, let us fear. It's an aorist passive subjunctive, which I know thrills your heart to know that. But essentially, it's a command to fear. And by the way, it's not about ancient Israel anymore. They're the example, but it's written to us. There's a reason to be afraid. Now, Hebrews 3 and 4 are a unit coming off of a quotation from Psalm 95 that's partially requoted in this text, uh, which refers back, Psalm 95 refers back to Numbers 13 and 14. So just like last week, we actually have three passages today. We won't go back to that earlier passage like we did uh, last week. But it's the story of Israel failing to enter God's rest in the land of promise, a failure of faith, leading to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and then dying without entering the land of rest. They failed to enter the rest. They didn't get there. And it wasn't a momentary failure of faith. It was 40 years of disobedience to God. They never made it in, not even Moses. Now, I want to make something else clear here. I don't interpret that to mean that everyone who died in the wilderness, that whole first generation, were all eternally lost. It was rather the trajectory of the community. The community's sin uh, resulted in the consequence of none of that generation going into the promised land, that is, except Caleb and Joshua, entered the land of rest. On the other hand, their children did get to go into the land of rest, and nor do I conclude that all of them were eternally saved just because they crossed the threshold of the border of the land, the outward entry into the land of promise, the visible entry. And as we continue to read the Old Testament, the history of Israel overall is not good. Psalm 95, 400 years later, Same danger of not entering God's rest so that the real issue is far more than getting some Canaanite real estate. That's not what it's about. And now this rest of entering Canaan, the land promised to Abraham for his descendants, corresponds to a much greater greater rest of infinitely greater consequence, which is ultimately eternal rest in heaven. The stakes are much higher in Hebrews. The warning continues developing the first and last lines of of the quote from Psalm 95 that you see in chapter 3. This line is is quoted in Hebrews 3.15 and again in 4.7. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The rebellion of Numbers 13, 14 to follow. 
Then the closing line of the Psalm 95 quotation, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Quoted in 4.3 in our text, and again in 4.5, the last half of it, they shall not enter my rest. Now I introduced this whole concept last week by emphasizing two key words, today and rest. Today is found five times in the two chapters, stressing a continuity of the warning from 1400 B.C., the time of Moses, to the time of David, about 1000 B.C., to the time of the Hebrews, about 60-65 A.D., and up to 2018. There's a continuity. It's still today, today. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's still today, but today won't last forever. It will come to an end when the opportunity to enter God's rest is gone. And it ends at death for every generation and every individual. So today is the opportunity for entering into the promise of God's rest. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the day of salvation. The other word is rest. It's really the dominant word used ten times in these two chapters. It's the rest that God provides. It's about relationship with God. Ultimately, it's about eternity with God. So coming to Hebrews 4, the warning is still being sounded, but it's a warning that is filled with opportunity and hope, but also with that lingering danger in the background. Hebrews 4.1 Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, that's a wonderful promise, tremendous opportunity. While that opportunity still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. Now, our Hebrews series theme is greater than. Joey kicked it off early October, I believe, with a greater revelation, which is Jesus. Then Jeff, Jesus is greater than angels and greater than Moses and has greater glory. But then there's this underlying theme of greater danger that goes through the text. And now in Hebrews 4, we are offered a greater rest, which will be considered in three categories Really, one rest, but it builds. It's a better rest based on a better Sabbath, based on a better Joshua. A better rest. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them. That's the word gospel. Good news. Evangelion, the gospel, the evangel. It's the first time the word's used in Hebrews. What was the good news for Israel? On the surface, bad pun fully intended, it was land. Just the surface of the ground. It was land. A home to call their own. God told Abraham that his descendants would be abused slaves in another country 
for 400 years, this is Genesis 15, and then they would come back to the land where Abraham was a stranger and a sojourner. He just was a nomadic tent dweller, constantly on the move. They're going to be gone, your family, for 400 years. They're going to come back out of slavery. And that's what happened, starting with the story of Joseph in the last quarter of Genesis. They went to Egypt to escape a famine. They came, became slaves. And true to the promise, Moses led them out of Egypt, not only to take them from slavery, but to take them to the promised land. That's called the Exodus, the second book of the Bible. If you've never read it, read it. It is so important understanding even the gospel. But the Exodus generation forfeited that promise. What went wrong? Verse 2, the message they heard, the promise of rest in the land, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. The promises were not united by faith with those who listened. Verse 6, that those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Two because factors. Not united by faith and disobedience. Now this is right after he's introduced the word good news or gospel, and so this makes me a little uh, uneasy because and feel tension here because this is symbolic or analogous of salvation, and we know that salvation is a gift of God's grace received by faith alone, not by works. That was true all the way back to Abraham. That wasn't invented in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Salvation has always been a gift of God's grace received by faith, not of works. This seems to bring works into it, but it's no different than what we find in the book of James, telling us that faith without works is dead. The evidence of true faith is the good works, the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence of not having faith is disobedience to God. Still singing, I did it my way, is your theme song. We're saved by grace through faith. Good works flow out of that. And Israel failed to enter the land of rest because the good news they heard about going into the land was not united by faith with those who listened. But the good news that came to us, not limited to real estate in Israel, that's not anything I'm needing, nor was it ultimately for them, which is proven by verse 1, talking now to people who are in the land, and says, but the promise of entering that rest still stands. Invitation is still open. Verses 6 and 7, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, Psalm 95, so long afterward, so long after the initial rebellion in the wilderness. In the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's what was said in Psalm 95. That's what was said over a thousand years later, Hebrews 
for. That's still the message today. The opportunity and the danger in David's time and in the first century remains today. There is a better rest, but today is when you must enter it. Next, we learn that this better rest is a better Sabbath. And this is where you might start scratching your head. So let's, let's dig in. Let's sit up just a little bit and, and uh, yawn if you need to, to, to wake yourself up here. But let's see if we can make sense of this. The idea begins in verses 3 and 4. But I'm going to go ahead to verses 9 and 10 for the language to describe it, and then we'll back up into 3 and 4 again. Of all the 10 times we find rest in this passage, this word is a different word. It's the Sabbath rest. It's sabbatismos, the Sabbath. You can hear the word in it. And the change in the word strengthens the sense of the rest. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And you're saying, what? Well, let's dig it out. This rest is a better rest because it's patterned after what God did. It's patterned after what God has done as God shares his rest with us. Now back to verse 4 where this idea is introduced. Going from verse 3 to verse 4, it seems the text is taking us in a particular direction. Then it does a sharp U-turn, catches us a bit by surprise, and goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. So he's drawing from quite a number of passages here. It's about God's rest in verses 3 and 4. For we who have believed enter that rest, and as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he's somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. That somewhere is Genesis 2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. More than Canaanite real estate, God invites us into his rest that is introduced at the end of the creation of the world, the introduction of the Sabbath rest into which God invites us, in which God invites you who are the last and greatest part of his creation, humanity, male and female, man and woman, made in the image of God, to know God in a personal way. In relationship, being in a rest relationship with God. It's not just one day in seven, the weekly Sabbath. Oh, okay, so every Saturday we get to be in relationship with God. No, that's not what it's saying. Kent Hughes in uh, notes in Genesis 1, and I think this is helpful. The six creation days all have a beginning and an end. There was morning, and there was evening, the first day. That formula is used after every day of creation. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. 
We have another day yet in the week. But through six days, each day has a beginning, each day has an ending. But on the seventh day, the beginning and ending formulation for the day is missing. It's not there. Chapter 2 of Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done, But that day doesn't have a beginning and an ending. That formulation is gone. God's rest from his six days of creative creation work, his rest continues unabated. And God is offering that promised rest, his unabated, ongoing, eternal rest to his children who will trust in him. God's rest is based on his perfect work of creation, which everything is said to be good or very good. God's rest is a celebration of God's good work. But then he points out that this rest is not a boring rest of doing nothing for eternity. Some of you are a little worried about heaven. You think it's going to be really boring, especially if it means we sit in church for eternity. You can barely handle an hour, hour and a half. So it's, it's not that, though. So relax. Well, don't relax because I want you to keep alert to look at this text. But, but, but God's rest is a working rest. It's a working rest, a delightful working rest. You recall how Jesus was always in trouble with the Pharisees for Sabbath breaking? <laughs> you know what Jesus said on one occasion? That was their issue until they finally figured out, oh, he is actually claiming to be God. He's blaspheming. They're a little slow to pick up on it, but they finally did. But they're still in this Sabbath hang-up. And Jesus answered on one occasion, my father is working until now, and I'm working. Wait a minute. God's resting. It's the seventh day for God. He's resting. But he's a working rest. My father is working. I'm working. We are invited into God's rest and we're invited into God's work. And in eternity, it will never be drudgery. This rest existed long before Moses and is not limited to the temporary rest of Canaan. It is God's rest from creation. That is the Sabbath rest, a rest far better than sitting in a patch of real estate in Israel or Indiana or wherever you think the best real estate is. Far more than that, we have a better rest. It's a Sabbath rest, and it's through. To get to this better Sabbath rest, it's through a better Joshua. Oh, I love this. This this is the key to getting it all. The second generation The second generation from Egyptian slavery, first generation died in the wilderness. The second generation, they entered the land. Who led them? A courageous man of faith named Joshua. Joshua took them. His faith did not waver, as did the others. And he took them into the land. So the promise was fulfilled in terms of giving them the land, but it was still partially, uh, symbolically 
because it wasn't yet the ultimate rest. Otherwise, Psalm 95 makes no sense. You haven't really entered the rest yet. Verse 8 explains, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Another day later on, another rest in view that they, and here's the warning of danger again, that they're in danger of forfeiting. Now, Bible translators face some significant challenges. Pray for those that that are serving in different parts of the world. But when, when the translators came to this verse in the Greek language, they had to stop and think for a moment. The 1611 King James Version translates it Jesus. And it's what it is. Jesus. It's the English Jesus. Of more than a thousand times this word is found in the New Testament, all but three times it's translated Jesus in the more modern translations. Of the three times when it's translated Joshua, one of them's in the genealogy of Luke 3. The other two are obvious references in context to the Old Testament leader and successor of Moses, Joshua. Messianic Jews, you've heard this, they refer to Jesus as Yeshua. Joshua. It's the same name. I think the writer's having some fun with us, teasing us a bit about a very serious matter. Context makes it clear it's Joshua of ancient Israel. He was a great and courageous leader, a man of faith, but he could not take Israel into the true rest of God. It's not in Canaan. Only a better Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, the Son of God in human flesh, forever identifying with us in our humanity. Look down to verse 15. I'm borrowing from Nathan's text for next Sunday, but not saying much about it, but in every respect, yet without sin. (laughs) He fully identifies with us in our humanity. He died on the cross for our sins, took our punishment, rose from the dead, offers the rest of eternal salvation to all who will believe in him. His name is Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, the second Joshua, the one who truly saves and brings us into God's rest to eternal salvation. Hebrews 12, I want to just look ahead to that. We'll come to it again in the spring. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The better covenant, the better rest, and to the sprinkled blood of the sacrifices. And he speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The entire Old Testament is illustrative, is pointing forward, is a trajectory toward the second Joshua, Jesus. And so we're offered a better rest, a better Sabbath, a better Joshua, a better city, a better mediator, a better covenant, a better Abel. And Jesus offers all of these things in bringing us into the eternal rest of God. Now, once more, the invitation and the warning. 
verses 11 to 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may, be, may, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then we come to what for many of you uh, are, are really the only familiar chap, uh, verses of the chapter, uh, verses that are often preached without keeping the context in mind. We're trying to bring it into context now, flowing right out of verse 11, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, God knows you through and through. You have no secrets from God. He knows your frailty as a believer. He knows your hypocrisy as a non-believer, play-acting as a believer. You can't hide from Him. You can't pretend with Him and get away with it. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You're naked before God. I'm talking about your body here. I'm talking about your heart. Everything about you. God knows you better than you know yourself. May the Spirit reveal the truth about ourselves to each one of us. So, our text begins, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, justice to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith. And then it closes, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Never forgetting that the issue is not your perfection, your accomplishments, your successes, but clinging to your confidence in Christ, holding your confidence firm unto the end as the evidence of true saving faith, that Christ has done for you what you can't do for yourself, that the good news of the better rest, the better Sabbath, the better Joshua with whom you are united by faith. Verse 3 says it so positively, such encouragement, for we who have believed enter that rest. For we who have believed, you'll see then the evidence of the new birth, the evidence of the changed life, and the promise of rest. So strangely, this book that has these warnings that are real warnings, that are valid warnings, that we must pay attention to these warnings, and yet ultimately it gives us tremendous security in knowing that in Christ we are at rest. We're safe with Him. Bear with me for a a closing illustration. Last August, uh, Linda and I and Delia, our granddaughter, uh, with us, we went to Sumner, Nebraska, population 250. Our ministry roots, where we went in 1976, started our pastoral ministry there. Um, Had Carolyn, our eight-month-old, with us. Jill came along a year later in 1977. And so we went there in August, hadn't been there in more than 20 years. And on 
Saturday afternoon before I preached on Sunday for this congregation, now merged with the Baptist church, so it's one, uh, one smaller church where there were two churches at one time. And I, and I just, on Saturday, I had this compulsion to, to drive up to the cemetery. My, my, do, my granddaughter Delia wonders what's with grandpa. He likes to visit cemeteries. I do. They're great places to visit. And uh, we speak of cemeteries as where we are laid to rest. You have to unpack that a little bit. It means, yeah, we, we put the body there that has died, that's been separated from the spirit, and that's where dead bodies are temporarily kept as they are metaphorically asleep or put to rest awaiting the resurrection. Now, going through that cemetery, it was a trip down memory lane as I uh, walked among the tombstones and reflected on the people whose names were on them after 38 years. You know, I was thinking I knew more people in the cemetery than I recognized on Sunday morning. That says something about the years passing. Just a few examples. Alvin Anderson and Paul Berman turned 65 the year I met them. Alvin lived to 95, outlived his son Stanley, my church chairman, who died at age 47, 22 years before his father died. His widow Shirley still living. Paul lived to 90, his wife Olivine to 98 and a half. Paul's sister Zanola, a single godly woman who often had the mysterious unspoken request at the prayer meeting. It's the first time I heard about unspoken requests. I think I understand what she meant. She had a real need. She just didn't want to share it. It was too personal. That's okay. Clarence and Esther Thomas told me the only thing they raised in the Dust Bowl of 1934 uh, Truman, I, I said the wrong word. There was an Esther Thomas there too. Clarence and Esther Truman told me the only thing they raised in the Dust Bowl of 1934 that year, no crops, no rain to speak of. The only thing they raised was a boy who was born that year. Clifford Newquist, church organist, treasurer, suffered for 85 years with brittle bone disease. I think it's the same thing that my granddaughters have and much better able to handle it today than then. Buried alongside his sister Mildred, longtime free church missionary to China and then to Hong Kong after the communists took over. Brother and sister buried side by side. Morris and Ellen Carlberg, source of much godly counsel to a young pastor. Harold and Juanita Eberly, married 68 years where every Christmas Eve those four years we were in their home for Christmas Eve dinner. They knew where their hope was. Do you see it? The way of the cross leads home. Bob and Marge Pierce, our surrogate parents and grandparents who gave us such love and support. Every Christmas morning for four years, we had breakfast, Christmas breakfast with them. You say, why didn't you go see your family? Because we had church at 6 o'clock in the morning. That's the Swedish way of doing things. It's called Yulita. So church at 6, and then you go out to breakfast uh, down the street at the, at the Pierce's. See, only one day under Bob's name, he's still with us, still sharp at 92. He turned 50 when I was called there, and he was telling me how old he was. He's now 92. Two more, Cecil and Mary Leith, three adult daughters, a lot of hurts, but saints whose suffering drew them ever closer to their Savior. And last of all, and I want to tell you about Cecil and Mary Lee's granddaughters, Shanna and Shelley Stevens. 
reason I was drawn to the cemetery that day is I wanted to see that stone. It's very precious to me. There's only one date on it. You can guess. They were born, stillborn. So the date of their birth is the day marked as their death. It's my first funeral. <laughs> I'm 25 years old. I've never done a funeral. I don't have a clue how to do a funeral. Oh, we had a class about it. Called my friend John McNeil, said, John, what do I do? He gave me some good pointers. I, we had a small service at the funeral home. They asked if it'd be okay if they put the little casket so big, like a cooler size, in the back seat of my car for the 30-mile drive to the cemetery. I said, sure. First and only time I've done that. At the cemetery, a few more awkward words. The little bodies were laid to rest, and they would be 42 years old now. I stood over their gravesite. Tears flowed. I celebrated the gospel that someday I'm going to meet Shanna and Shelley in heaven because they're at rest. And through faith in Jesus, believe I'm at rest. As worked up and crazy as life is, ultimately, I believe God has given me that rest as well. It'll be fulfilled one day as we await the precious resurrection of their bodies. Now, there were other graves that day. I won't put any of them on the screen. There were other graves that I saw that day where I didn't have the same confidence that they had entered the rest of God. I was pretty sure some hadn't. And thus the importance for all of us to heed the warnings of Hebrews to consider the eternal future described in Revelation 14 in two ways. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name, ultimately they did not receive the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. How much better, two verses later, Revelation 14, 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, oh yeah, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they, that they may rest from their labors, full of entering into the rest of God, for their deeds follow them. I haven't said a lot about Thanksgiving today. It's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. I'm just saying to you, as you go into Thanksgiving Day this year, it's a holiday, uniquely American holiday, but may we go beyond our thankfulness and beyond uh, for America and beyond American traditions and abundance, and may we celebrate with thankfulness the rest that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Of all the things to be thankful for, Jesus said to the disciples who came back from a mission trip, all pumped up and excited about what they'd seen God do. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Is yours? I invite you to enter the rest of God by putting your faith in Jesus as your Savior today. God, thank you for your rest. We get weary of body. 
we deal with stress of all kinds, and in that sense, the, the rest is still future for us, but there's another sense in which in Christ, we are already in that rest. Our names are in heaven, recorded there. May we celebrate that rest. May we be thankful for that rest. And, oh, God, I pray you know the hearts of me. You know my heart. You know the heart of every person in this room. I pray that anyone who's not said yes to Jesus would say yes to him today. Enter that rest in his name. Amen.